0: Hello, dear listener, whoever you are, wherever you are, welcome to episode number eight. I'm Lauren Wood, and here on The Pursuit Pod, I get to chat with artists abroad who, like me, have travelled in the pursuit of their creative careers, and today, we have a different kind of story to share with you all. Not one that features a complete life change and relocation to another country for work, as we've heard from a number of our previous guests, but instead of an adventure, a pilgrimage or a creative experiment, so to say, that so many artists dream about pursuing, and that is the process of touring a show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I'm not going to lie, folks creating and taking a show to this prestigious event is something I have always dreamed of doing, but I wouldn't even know the first place to start. So I found someone who's done exactly that firsthand to tell us about her experience and what to expect from such a huge career endeavor. Natalie Behensky, is the producer and artistic director of the Act React Theatre Company and is someone who has always been a huge supporter and mentor of mine. In fact, she cast me in some of my first ever roles in theatre and is largely responsible for fueling the fire for my personal career path. She herself has gone from strength to strength as a creative over the past decade and, as well as telling us about her whirlwind experience of creating and touring her own work to the festival, She's going to tell us her origin story of how her company came to be and, what I find particularly inspiring, how this hard-working former journalist has managed to ditch her previous career to now be a full-time creative. Isn't that the dream, guys? And she's done it all from Brisbane, Australia. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, my love. Welcome to the show. I know we'll also say hello to some of your little cats crawling around in the back there. I think they're trying (laughs) to be heard as well. I can hear them pottering about. (laughs) They will no doubt
1: make an appearance. There's three of them and they don't like people. They're very scared of humans generally, unless I'm trying to do Zoom calls or Skype calls or any kind of podcast recording when they decide that it's really important that they have a say.
0: (laughs) Of course, of course. Well, we'll say hello to them if they make an appearance. Uh, If not, listeners, if you can hear them in the background, it's just our little cat friends. Don't worry. Uh, But Nat, I've brought you on today because you have got a very different story to share with us. A lot of the guests that we've featured so far on the pod have actually moved abroad to fully relocate in their pursuit of things. But your work overseas has come about with your involvement in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. In in what year, Nat, was that? Did you take the show to Edinburgh?
1: 2019, and it hasn't been held since.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you got in just in time. <laughs> oh, oh, I cursed it. Either or, I don't know. Either or, but you got there. And I know for me and a lot of creatives out there, the Edinburgh Fringe is a very, perhaps romanticised, but prestigious bucket list type event that can sometimes make or break a project
1: yeah it's an interesting beast it's very very well known within artistic circles theatrical circus certainly stand-up comedy for the past probably 20 30 years is mostly what it's known for even though that's not how it began Uh, but pretty much anything alternative it's the largest arts festival in the world a sizable chunk of people would not have heard of it but it is almost kind of like the olympics for many performing artists for uh, fringe
0: festivals, definitely.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, it's a really interesting beast in that it is not a monolith. Uh, it, it is The Edinburgh Fringe is simply a title. There is a fringe society that kind of manages, I guess, a bit of a top-down approach, but there's no artistic director. There's no quality control there's no standards that you have to meet if you can get a venue to program you you can do a show at the Edinburgh Fringe it's it's incredibly easy access so that means you have incredibly high quality shows in beautiful performance venues and then you have like weird out there strange the weird the wonderful the wacky the lowbrow in back rooms of pubs in basements any conceivable space in a building can be turned into a venue so you you've just got the broadest range of
0: performers in Edinburgh
1: you know from the sublime to the ridiculous really
0: And I know, well, you say it's easy to access, but it was something you were planning for a long time. You're the creator and artistic director of the Act React Theatre Company in Brisbane, and your company's been well-established there for many years, often producing shows at the Brisbane Powerhouse and throughout Oz when you're on tour. But could you start off just by telling us a little bit about your company and how you came around to actually applying and taking one of your shows over to Edinburgh? Okay, so there's probably two stories there. So the story of Act React Act is that
1: I spent most of my 20s as an improviser comedian. I directed shows which the lovely Lauren here uh, mm-hmm. has been in a number of my shows and at some point I wanted to try producing a show myself. So self-funding a show and seeing what that would be like. So I produced a show called He Died with a Fluffle in His Hand which Australians would know very well. Your British listeners probably wouldn't know it all, but it's kind of a cult Australian classic book that got turned into a play. And so we did a production of that in 2013. And I needed a name to produce this show under because I was taking my holiday savings of about four or $5,000 and I was hiring a theatre for a week. And so I wanted a name that would kind of represent the mix of scripted stuff and non-scripted stuff that I hoped maybe to do one day. And so Act, React became about, well, there's acting and reacting. Um, So acting, scripted, reacting, more improvisation. And then really what has come to me now is the fact that a lot of the shows that we do that, that we've sort of turned into have a really key element of audience interaction. So the acting and the reacting is almost about the relationship between the performers and the audience and how so many of our shows require audience feeding into the show to to make them what they are. The the big shows that we're kind of most well-known for in Australia now are the movie The Play shows. So we came up with this concept, This Is Me, and uh, two friends, dear friends and fellow creatives, Greg Robotham and Dan Beeston, and we came up with the idea for Speed, the movie The Play, uh, which is where we took the movie Speed with Keanu Reeves and we decided to turn it into a comedy parody play set on an actual bus. So the audience are the passengers who are held hostage. If you remember the movie Speed, it's about Keanu Reeves, who's a cop. He has to stop a bus that will explode if it goes less than 50 uh, miles an hour. So we followed Speed with Titanic the movie the play and then more recently Die Hard the movie the play we would like to do more in future but various for various reasons including our pandemic our, our you know attempts to to get more stuff happening has been slightly thwarted but we also do smaller scale shows and that's where the story of Edinburgh begins
0: because a a show on a bus or in built into the front part of a ship is not necessarily the most portable of projects. When looking at yeah, so we have toured to
1: both Perth and Sydney in Australia. It's more doable than you would think with the bus because what we use are vintage buses, and it turns out there's a lot of little organizations out there that are little volunteer charities that save and protect and restore a lot of vintage buses and so once we started building those connections you start to find oh we could probably source a bus it is one of my goals one day maybe pray to the theater gods or whatever it is maybe i could do a show like speed in edinburgh but there are so many obstacles to that which i can go through later on when we talk
0: about (laughs) what it's like to take a show but a two-hander a two-hander such as love hate actually which is what you ended up creating and taking over to the show is far far more yeah
1: so I first went to Edinburgh as a punter to see shows in 2008 and I went and stayed with a dear friend of mine uh, who your listeners might know I know you certainly know Uh, her name is Deborah Francis White she is Australian by birth but a naturalized British citizen now she moved to the UK I think pretty much straight out of school and uh, eventually went to Oxford and is now host of The Guilty Feminist, which is one of the biggest podcasts in the world. Um, she's an amazing comedian, activist. She does a lot of work uh, in like gender d- diversity in the workplace, that sort of yeah. thing. So she goes and tours and speaks and she's just an amazing, amazing person. And she started doing Edinburgh, I think 2008 was her second year, uh, maybe her third. And I was so excited because I'd been over there for a holiday in the UK and Europe and then I had the last week going up to Edinburgh and I got to stay with Deb, two fellow performers uh, that she was staying with and I got a room there for the week and in return I flyed for them. So I would hand out flyers to help and that was my kind of work that I did in return for very, very cheap accommodation. Which is
0: a, a main form of promotion at the Edinburgh Fringe, the flyering, the old school oh, method yeah. of flyering and literally being on a street corner and spruking your show.
1: It is so, so much a part of the ecosystem there and I, I guess it's more effective there than in any other festival in the world. Certainly in Australia, flyering is not massive. I think at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, it is done, uh, I think it's done there a fair bit outside main hub venues, Adelaide fringe a little bit, but it's just not, it's, 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 it's just really seen as a part of Edinburgh that people are ha- going to be handing out flyers and you take them and then you'll probably just throw them in the bin down the road, but it's just still a part of it. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues on as we sort of try to move to less paper environmentally yeah. destructive <laughs> ways of promoting those. And there are a lot of companies now that say, you know, take flyers back or anything that's unused they'll take back and pulp responsibly and that sort of thing. But, yeah, a lot still ends up in landfill, no doubt. But one of the the most important things that happened to me in Edinburgh in 2008 was I was in. I did a few guest spots in impro shows. Deborah helped connect me with a few people and I got to do a few guest spots, which was great. But then I did the worst show of my life still to this day in Edinburgh. It was a midnight impro show and it was so appalling it's left me even when I think of it I get shudders it was so misogynistic and oh just gross I I did two scenes because it was an elimination format the first scene I was in I think was kind of a mimed scene so I didn't speak the second scene was a dubbed scene where I was speaking in kind of a gibberish language and I was overdubbed so I did not speak a word of English the whole two scenes that I was in and then I got eliminated I have never been happier to be canned out of a out of a show so early. I was appalled by how bad it was. And that made me realize that oh my god, I thought Edinburgh was this high standard of perfection and that everything was amazing there and you had to be really really good and you had to be extraordinary to get there. And that made me go, hang on a second, the stuff that we're doing in Brisbane which is, you know, considered even by a lot of Australians as like, well, it's just Brisbane. We were doing really innovative stuff compared to this horrible misogynistic stuff in Edinburgh that I saw. Not saying that we were perfect, but just saying that it it stripped away a bit of my, um, what do you call it, uh, imposter syndrome. Yeah. I was like, we could actually yeah, do it. Yeah, I that. can
0: imagine. And I mean, if if nothing else to come out of this horrible impro <laughs> show, this frightening experience that you just wanted to get out of it. I mean, if it's lowered your standards slightly in the best of ways, it's lowered your expectation yes. of what the the festival requires. And uh, as you say, Brisbane's doing great stuff and you guys are doing great stuff. So why not, why not take it over? So fast forward, just the idea, I guess I didn't really have anything
1: that I could take conceivably. At the end of 2017, uh, my dear friend Amy Curry, who is the opposite in Love, Hate, Actually to me, the show uh, we created together is about the movie Love, Actually. Amy loves it. I hate it. We fight. It's a two-woman comedy showdown <laughs> and it's really fun and, and we're really proud of it. It's a really, really good show that we are super proud of and we did it first in Brisbane at the end of 2017 and then we, we started doing it a bit in 2018. The other major thing that happened to me is that in mid-2018, I left my job. Now, a quick bit about me. I've always been a creative person and I've always done shows and comedy and ever since I can remember, but I didn't pursue it as a job job, kind of straight out of school. I became a journalist, so still a creative career. And I loved being a journalist and I still sometimes think maybe I should try to get back into it. But Turns out it's pretty tough. It's almost as tough as the arts these days, (laughs) um, the media. But in 2015, I actually went and I went to work for government. I actually went to work for the Premier of Queensland, you know, so the, the state's highest politician. And I went to work for her as her arts advisor, I guess, given that I had this sort of sister career or unpaid side career in the arts. And I was a journalist. I did a lot of arts journalism, kind of seemed to land me this job. So it was a totally different world. I was able to still keep doing shows on the side, but the job got more and more stressful. I had a change to a different minister at one point and then by mid-2018, I was burnt out. I was just burnt out and I couldn't even imagine taking another job. So I was able to leave with a small payout and I thought, well, maybe this is the opportunity to take some time to kind of rest, refocus and think about maybe trying to turn my side hustle into my main hustle and I'd had a holiday pre-booked which I subsequently went on and part of that was was going to family in Glasgow and of course I popped over to Edinburgh to see some shows for a weekend and saw Deborah again and just sort of talked about you know talked her through Lovehead actually did I did she think it might be a show that could work there she was very supportive and I just sort of walked the town and and thought maybe this is the time to try for Edinburgh 2019 and Love Hate Actually would be the show. And so because I had time and I had a little bit of money from this payout to kind of support me for a while, so I went and did bits of casual work and things like that. And I started booking in tours for Love Hate Actually and other shows that Actriact do and started just trying to tour work. I'm very lucky in that I have kind of an angel investor. Uh, so if you're in Brisbane, look up Elephant Boots Productions. I think it's ebproductions.com or .com.au. I should know that. Um, <laughs> but you'll find them, Elephant Boots Productions. And Walter and his team, they're they're local and they just want to support innovative, small, essentially theatrical startups. And he really liked speed. He really liked what we were doing. And he wanted to kind of come in and and help make things happen kind of I guess it's his form of gambling, really. He's sort of gambling that maybe my creativity might take off someday,
0: which bless him. <laughs> I think that's really fascinating to hear about, Nat, because I know so many, especially young artists who are trying to get themselves off the ground, often it's the question of funding and where to get it, to even get yourself started. That is really a hot topic for people. So I love that you speak so openly about this investor of yours who has really been the the main reason you've been able to get Act React well, off the ground. Well,
1: we... We we had been doing things. I used a lot of my own money into Act React in the early days, um, particularly once I moved into government where I had sort of the best paying job that I'd ever had in my life. And I just used a lot of that money to invest in shows and to pay bills and that sort of thing. When it came cause Walter initially approached us and I, I sort of I have this weird thing about taking other people's money was like, but I have to pay it back. I have to pay it back. So the first time I actually said, okay, well, maybe I can, you could lend me money is when we first toured Speed, the movie the play to Perth in early 2017 because I thought, well, I know that with my budgets we should be able to make that money back. I can pay him back that sum and then I can sort of pay the actors something and we end up neutral. So that's what ended up happening. Actually, I don't even think I paid the actors that time, but I think we ended up... I covered all the actors' flights and accommodations so they didn't have to pay anything and had some budget for food there and that sort of thing. But I don't know if I yeah. paid them in the first time. Running a, running a company like I was, it's very much been a small profit share style building up, building up to now. I'm a company where I'm trying to do, have payments for people and it's very important for me to be ethical and to pay what I can to my artists, but I'm not at the point where I can pay sort of award wages and things like that. So it's still, there's still like an element of profit share, but there's also I've done some shows where I've I've paid actors even when I've then taken a loss on the show overall, because it's important to me to try to be as ethical as I can. So yes, to get back to, to Walter, I I invested a lot of my own money to begin with, but then the 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 idea of touring is what made me think more about well, maybe this is where an investor can help. So Walter then once I left my job and I didn't then have an income coming in, I could go to him and say, look, could you stump me up, you know, this many dollars to get a show up and then I will pay you back, you know, out of my box office return. Uh, now, for the most part, I've, I've done pretty well at that. But then Edinburgh was the big test and Edinburgh is a lot of money to do. If you're
0: Australian and you're taking a show over and you're kind of self-funding, and talking about managing finances, I mean, Edinburgh is not a money-making endeavour. No. And I was very clear about that with Walter. I said, look, first and foremost, it's the experience.
1: It's going and doing it. As you said, it's sort of a bucket list item. It's also the potential for exposure. It's the potential for networking and at least meeting people and trying to trying to get your show out there in an incredibly competitive environment. But yes, it is not a money maker Because of the venue that we got in the end was... 50 seats uh, I think we would have to sell out every performance to break even he did not sell out every performance <laughs> um actually I think even I I think even with that it was like gonna lose a couple of like I don't think there was a way of becoming like into the into the black uh, without Edinburgh tour now there are some reasons for that I mean we went economy we didn't sort of particularly get anything fancy aeroplane yeah. wise we did Get what we spent money on was accommodation, or what I chose to spend money on was accommodation. So you might have heard, if you've heard anything about Edinburgh Fringe, is that accommodation is one of the trickiest things. Uh, lots of people in Edinburgh leave the city for Fringe, uh, really? and they rent out their apartments. At you know,
0: oh, I didn't know that. Where do they go? <laughs> they just go to family and have their places up for rent during the yeah. Festival. So some
1: some people uh, go stay with family. Some people might stay with friends. Uh, for wow. the month, some people might go on holidays for the month themselves. So they go somewhere else and they rent out their flat. Uh, some people have multiple properties. So they just, you know, they might, some people I think have arrangements where well, we'll all go live at Barry's place and we'll all rent out, you know, ours and we give Barry some money or, you know, I'm sure there are all sorts of arrangements in place there.
0: Yeah. Just capitalizing on this injection of tourism that comes yeah. into the town once yep. a year.
1: Yeah, Because you can make, like you can make, and it's been a big problem for them over there because- There's a history, I believe, of, say, students, for example, having a flat but then their leases are only for a year. They get kicked out just before August when Edinburgh Fringe is is the whole of August basically. So their lease comes to an end. They have to kind of leave. The tenants or the the owners, landlords put people in for Edinburgh, make a whole bucket of money there, and then once Edinburgh is over, they sort of put the call out and get more students back in. So it's this weird cycle where locals have often expressed frustration at not being able to have more permanency in their leases because landlords... Are trying to cash in on Edinburgh dollars—it's it's a big issue. You can you can spend so much time as as I have reading up about issues of, of Edinburgh, and it's the same stories kind of every year. Because after after going to Edinburgh in two thousand and eight, I started following a whole bunch of venues and local papers and that sort of thing on on Twitter, and I still do follow them. And so every August would be this: oh, here's more things happening in Edinburgh, and I'm not there. oh, here's more things, but every year you would also you would also see like accommodation is being pushed to the brink. And prices are going through the roof and it's the same things every year. So one of the interesting things about COVID is how that will affect the Edinburgh's of the future. And I think it's probably for the best that the city maybe sits down with stakeholders and tries to work out, you know, what Edinburgh should look like going forward and how can it benefit the city the way it does, but also best serve everyone who goes there, because you could argue that it's not really serving very many people. (laughs) Like it's brilliant and it's amazing and everyone loves it, but so many people don't make any money. Even the big venues, they've been crying poor through COVID saying, you know, they don't really make, their overheads are so much that they don't really make a big profit even though they take heaps of money from artists who are presenting shows at their venues so the artists don't like the venues. (laughs)
0: It's just... It's just a nightmare, logistical Fringe nightmare for this, for, this, for this festival that, as you yeah. say, are struggling to to make money in any capacity. They're just sort of keeping afloat in so many ways yes. because of the input from all the artists that are yeah. coming into it as well. But, yeah, it's going to be a whole new world post-COVID. Yeah, because the,
1: the reason is is that Edinburgh is seen as like the Discovery Playground. So you have people like... Eddie Izzard, the Mighty Boosh, um, going back to people like uh, I think the the maybe not the Pythons but the, the, the Goodies and all those kinds of gangs would go up to Edinburgh and do shows and sketch comedy shows and Rowan Atkinson and just so many British comedy people in particular get kind of found or people from the telly get found through Edinburgh and they end up with TV. Yeah,
0: of course, like most recently the with Phoebe Roller-Bridge's journey, starting with Fleabag yep. over there, that launched her, her trajectory from that as well. It's such a hub for projects taking off over there. So exciting. And so, as you said, the, the accommodation side was quite important yes. for you. Also because you have a relationship with Amy as friends as well as, Uh, colleagues and you needed to maintain that because you're going to spend a lot of hours together roughing it over there. You know what we're in our 30s um, I'm a couple of
1: years older than Amy but uh, you know in our in our mid to late 30s a lot of people do Edinburgh when they're uni students or in their 20s and you know are happy to go and they get a house together they sleep on floors people share beds they you know all sorts of things and I could have tried to do that I could have got I could have potentially saved a bit of money by getting a one bedroom and we share a double bed or, and I I just knew we're going all this way. We're going all this way to do a show. It's going to be tough. I knew from Deborah's experiences that Edinburgh is mentally tough. And and, and this is important to talk about because, you know, you're kind of living your dream but at the same time going, I hate everything, I'm questioning everything I've ever done. (laughs) You know, this is terrible. And uh, having this horrible experience at the same time you're having this amazing experience. So for me, I knew going in that it was going to be tough. I knew that both Amy and I like to have our space. I know that Amy. um, I don't think she'd mind me saying this, but she likes to hermit. Um, That's kind of one of her ways of managing stress. Is she likes to just kind of bundle herself up and read.
0: Isn't it funny? I know so many actors and performers who have that (laughs) have that behavior as well. well. I
1: I do it too. Does and I I I tried to be very considerate as a producer of what Amy, as a performer and as my friend, needed, and in my mind, that was space so she could relax, that she could have to herself, that she didn't feel like I was barging in and kind of, I'm, I'm big and loud and clumsy. And I, you know, I, if I could keep that to my own bedroom, then I would be happier for, to, to make sure that we both kind of had our space. We had the ability to rest. We had the ability to just enjoy the time there because we're in a beautiful city and it's, it's, you know, who knows if you're, and particularly now that COVID's hit, but you know, it was like, this could be our only chance. I mean, I hope it's not, but it it could be. So I want to not have the memory of having to lie on a smelly mattress on the floor in a house with 20 other people like, and having to bus in every day or, so that's where I spent the majority of kind of our cash and don't regret it. Yeah. But considering some of the challenges that then we did face which in hindsight, aren't that great challenges at all. But at least I knew I had a nice comfy bed to go home to. And then the other thing that I ended up doing while I was there, which is a bit of a sidebar, but I there was a yoga studio not far from where we were staying. So I signed up for a temporary pass and I went and did um, hot yoga a couple of times a week during French. So I felt very, very proud of myself, was walking everywhere and doing some hot yoga. And I was like, I'm giving this my fullest uh, mental health, physical health energy and then I still had horrible times.
0: <laughs> but, but when you when you first get there on that first day when you've rocked up, talk talk to us now about arriving in Edinburgh and starting the festival.
1: Yeah. So it's all, uh, I don't want to say a fairy tale, but it was, it, it was, it's a low key start because we went and stayed a couple of nights ahead of Edinburgh with, um, at my, I've had relatives in Glasgow at the time. They've since moved to Australia. So that uh, free accommodation is gone. But We went to Glasgow because we actually drove up from London. We had like a little English countryside kind of pre-Edinburgh driving holiday. So we got to Glasgow where we bought the remainders of our props and stuff like that. Actually, do you know what I've got here? I'll show you. I found my Edinburgh diary, which is Ah. not, it's not super detailed, but it's got actually has all the numbers. I kept a record of all the numbers of our audiences each night. And basic. Basic who was what and where. So I've got, you know, I've got historical evidence now. So 31st of uh, July, we drove to Edinburgh from Glasgow to do our first tech. We unloaded all of our props and stuff like that. Amy took that into the hotel. We, um, I should tell you a bit about the venue that we're at. We were at the Imagination Workshop Hub, which that year was at the Hotel George. It changed. (laughs) This is typical Edinburgh. They got the hotel sorted, told us we had all of our flyers done up with like the George Hotel or something like that. And then it changed a couple of weeks before Edinburgh. It (laughs) rebranded. Was that
0: a venue that you had discovered when you had done your previous mission there in in 2000? How did you get in contact with that venue to to get your show there? That's a very good point. So the venue system. Let's
1: backtrack to the venue system. Yeah, I'd love to know about that. It's incredibly complicated. Basically, Edinburgh is there's businesses who run venues. And when I say a venue, I don't just mean like one space. I mean they run a site and the site has multiple spaces. The big four in Edinburgh are called the Pleasants, And they run a site called the Pleasance Courtyard as well as the Pleasance Dome and the Pleasance something else. Um, And each of those sites has multiple little rooms ranging from like a 30-person room to maybe a 750-person room. Uh, And those sites are kind of rolling through shows from 10 in the morning till maybe 4 in the morning. They're just ongoing, every hour, new show, new show. Uh, So the big four in Edinburgh are the Pleasance, the Assembly Rooms, the Gilded Balloon, and the Underbelly. So they're what's called the Big Four in Edinburgh. And it's kind of seen as a really good sign if you can get into a Big Four venue because you have apparently better exposure, better chances of getting reviews, better chances of being seen uh, at the Big Four. A lot of people go to Edinburgh and they just kind of hang out at one of the Big Four venues. So they might go to the Pleasance Courtyard grab a, a beer at the table and then just go see four or five shows over the course of an afternoon and then just have drinks and catch up in the middle of it. So you can you can kind of do Edinburgh Fringe and not leave one site essentially. Or you can traipse all over town seeing all sorts of different stuff. So they're the main four. They're the kind of like aspirational venues that you, that you want to try to get. But there's a whole bunch of other ones with varying degrees of – Uh, how would you call this financial uh, risk and reputation so even the big four venues I think money wise in Edinburgh basically what the venues do is they charge you either a flat rate or a percentage of your box office whatever is higher so if you are in a 50 person room charging and this is the other thing about Edinburgh the ticket prices are so low they're so low this is why it's really hard to make money because there's so much competition. You can go and see a show for, you know, there's so much that's all happening for free. And we'll get into the free fringe. That's a whole other thing. Oh, my God, I forgot about the free fringe. So um, <laughs> let's, say, let's say you're at a paid venue and you're charging £10 a ticket. The venue is going to take, say, 40% of, of that ticket, so £4. Or if you don't get the audiences to a certain amount, they'll take a percentage of it. They'll take like a proportion of your money, whatever is higher. So the venues never lose. Now, they would tell you, and I'm not disagreeing, I'm not saying that this isn't true, they have massive overheads. They're putting in heaps of money into publicity, into promotion, into creating desirable venues where people will be attracted to. So that's what they're using that money for. And as I mentioned earlier, they're the ones kind of going to the Scottish government going, we need a handout to help us put on the next fringe so everyone's kind of doing it on shoestring budgets and everyone's you know everyone's paying money now we were really fortunate with um imagination workshop so they're run by the australian group behind the faulty towers the dining experience imagination workshop was the name of their kind of hub in edinburgh they'd been doing that uh, Faulty Towers Dining Experience in Edinburgh for I think like 15 years and they decided to branch out and have their own hub so they were looking for acts. Amy works for uh, the Faulty Towers Dining Experience in Australia she's a civil. Uh so through that contact we we're able to get in touch with the team there and to talk about what their deal for Edinburgh was so we paid them a kind of a fee I guess like a sign-on fee and then they took 20 yeah. percent of our box office which was you know a very good deal for Edinburgh. Yeah. So that was really good. The only other venue I'd tried to pursue was at the Gilded Balloon. And I had met with them at Adelaide Fringe and sort of talked about the show and tried to pursue that as an option. But in the end, they didn't get back to me for the longest time. And then when they did, they said, Oh, actually, we don't think, because we had a, I think we had like a song at the end of ours, and they thought oh, it'll clash with another show that's going to be up above where we would put you and all sorts of reasons you know eventually they just didn't want the show really but they i think they were going to charge 30%
0: but yeah it's interesting to hear about the difference in cuts that different venues yeah. take and also that it's it's not an easy feat in actually landing a venue you do have to do your research you do have to get networking and find not only a place that's going to be right for your show, but a place that will just make a space yes. for you yeah, as well. And
1: and um so you know, ultimately we were really fortunate. Now, the George Hotel where we were was in the New Town. Edinburgh, if you know Edinburgh, Edinburgh, the Royal Mile is from Holyrood Palace at the bottom of the Royal Mile right up to Edinburgh Castle at the top of the Royal Mile, and in between there are all the different gates. So you've got your Cannon Gate, your Cowgate, your High Street, you know, so it's all these different streets that make up the Royal Mile. So that's kind of the centre of the tourist town. The New Town, which was established in the mid-1700s, um, but it's more kind of hotels and high-end shopping and that sort of thing. So there's still heaps going on in the New Town, but the Old Town is kind of where most people sort of gravitate towards, and that's where the, the big four venues have most of their stuff. So... We were worried that being in the new town might take us out of the traffic flow for the, the Royal Mile would. But at the same time, we found some ways to make our location work for us, which I can get into. Finally, before I finish on the venues, I do want to touch on the free fringe um, because this is a way that people might want to investigate. People who are listening, who are thinking about Edinburgh, this might be a way for people to, to investigate going for a much lower cost, um, but it has its own its own risks. Uh, so the Free Fringe, um, Edinburgh was started in the late 40s. So there was an Edinburgh festival before that, and it was a very highbrow arts festival. And a whole bunch of artists, mostly theatre performers, so, you know, Shakespearean actors and things, thought this is too highbrow. It's too, it doesn't speak to the people. It doesn't connect with ordinary working people. It's all very highbrow and fancy. So what they did was they set up, I think, in the Meadows, which is sort of a famous park in the middle of Edinburgh, and they kind of set up little stages and they just performed there for free. And that was the first Edinburgh Fringe. So it's literally where the word fringe comes from, is that it was on the fringe of the main festival. It developed over years and it, I I don't know when it overtook the main Edinburgh Festival, but certainly by the 80s I think it had overtaken the main Edinburgh Festival and so the Fringe had become the main game in town. So to the point where people forget that while the Fringe is running, there's also the Edinburgh Festival that's running, (laughs) which is the fancy high-end one. So the idea with Fringe is that, as I said, it was accessible to all. But that's when the big venues started coming in, in the 80s, and particularly as comedy really took off at Edinburgh Fringe, like stand-up comedy became what a lot of people know it for. Uh, and they came in to kind of monopolise. I don't necessarily mean that in a, in a nasty way, but they just came in to kind of consolidate, you know, who are the comedians, where are they performing, and that kind of thing. About 10 years or so after that, I think sort of by the 90s, some people thought, well, it should go back to the real spirit of the Fringe, which is not this commercialization of art, but it's about low access low cost and rewarding the artists that you like and so they started a a free fringe movement which is about you can go and see a show for free some of them if they're popular you have to book but you still don't have to pay and then the artists hand around a hat at the end and if you liked the show you just put money in the hat and you leave so you can go to Edinburgh and just see free shows and not pay for anything if you're a cheapskate but the idea is if you enjoy a show you kind of pay what you feel it's worth. Some people will just throw you a pound or two, other people might throw you a 10 pound note, some people might really love you and throw you a 50 so it's just it's a crapshoot. A lot of people now say I've I've met a number of people who said they make heaps more doing the free fringe than they ever did at a, at a paid venue because they keep everything themselves so at the end of the night you take your little hat home and you've got 100 quid and then that's your expenses for the next day so that's how a lot of people kind of survive at Edinburgh by when they're on the free fringe is as long as you've paid your accommodation then what you get is kind of your spending money so yeah and it can vary you can get you can make if you're relatively well-known or people have you know had a few drinks they're really enjoying you you might get more some nights you might end up with nothing but it's it's a it's a crapshoot but um I think people are tend to be more generous so that was one thing that we initially looked at with love hate actually but ultimately I decided that we had the opportunity with imagination workshops and of course they were they were paid shows but I wanted given that we were coming all this way I wanted to you know, make that commitment and go, I want to see what what we get for our, you know, for our for our dollars. Yeah. So Of course.
0: And you guys, Act React has done a lot of comedy work in its canon of productions. Like the the fringe is a is the perfect platform for uh something yeah. like love, hate, actually. But, but I mean it doesn't come without a bit of competition. I guess you're then in this arena with so many other comedians, and there's probably this element of comparing yourself to others and managing that expectation as yeah, well. Yeah, it's
1: tough. It's so tough. We one of the nicest things though was the 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 people I probably compared myself the most to, and not and not even really comparing, but we were in the same room as a girl group called the dots who were after us on sort of thursday friday saturday nights they were doing other shows at the venue as well but they were three girls doing like a girl group and they were after us and amy and i went to see them like about a week after we'd sort of got settled in and we went yes we'll come we'll come see you tonight and we sort of sat there going they are so much better than us but then we were like and we love them for it we just love them and because we had that camaraderie of the dressing room and we were getting to know them and we're like you guys are amazing you are amazing. Thankfully, they ended up coming to see our show and and loved it and thought that we were lots of fun. But we were like, no, but seriously, you you guys are amazing. So that was like the nicest experience of going, I'm so glad. And they ended up getting lots of five-star reviews. And I was so proud of them. I was so proud that these were my my roommates you know my my dressing yeah. room mates
0: and oh i love hearing about that the camaraderie that comes from working with people on the field like that it's that's a lovely way to look at things i was
1: really really just stoked for them and and, and in a genuine cuz this is the thing about the arts like it's it's a competitive business and just in my life anywhere i've been you you want your fellow artists to succeed but you, you kind of don't want them to succeed as much as you. It's a horrible truism, I think, that you're still, you love it when people succeed, but you're also a bit like, oh, I wish I could be as, why am I not? Get? You've probably <laughs> always got a little bit of, oh, I can't do that. I wish I could be as funny as, oh, why didn't I? Certainly that's for me and I, I want to be very honest. Like I you know, envy and jealousy are uh, traits that I have in myself that I really work hard to not let dominate me because I always get the feeling that they could and it's a very, very stupid thing
0: to work in something like the arts and let envy and jealousy dominate you. But I think unfortunately, because of that, we don't talk about it. And there's this real toxic positivity that can sometimes creep in with interactions such as this, where you're trying to be falsely positive and falsely supportive. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be supportive, you should always be there for your fellow performers. But it's hard, you're constantly comparing yourself to other people. On a platform like Edinburgh, you literally look around and there's hundreds of people doing exactly what you're doing. It's hard to it's hard to not feel those feelings of imposter syndrome yeah. or like you're not good enough. Yep, exactly. And especially when you've got so much at stake, you put so much money, so much time, so much effort into achieving it. That it, Those are natural feelings. And we just don't talk about them very much. You know what? And I think um
1: probably the savior for me on this was, was having Amy there, you know, actually doing a two, two person show. And Amy and I you know, we have many differences, but we have a lot of key similarities. And one of them is our ability to kind of just sink into like a little, like a little bitch session and go, well, They didn't come all the way from Australia, did they? And I bet they have rich parents. and just kind of invent a narrative for why this person is doing really well that is nonsensical and is, you know, unfair or whatever. You have no idea of the details. But
0: you just... Sometimes you just got to get it out of your system and with the right person. That's right. For me, um, I think back to when I was a kid with my mum doing a Steadfords, and my mum is not a stage mum by any means, but she was always very supportive and took me here, there and everywhere to pursue my my endeavours. But we always used to have the car chat on the way home, which was the chat that only happened between the people you really loved when the doors were shut exactly. and no one could hear you and you just had to get it out. Yes. You just have to talk speak your mind so that you can then get it out, take a breath and re-emerge back into the world yes. as a sensible, loving human being. <laughs>
1: and it was nice to have those chats too because sometimes, you know, with the show we would have nights where like maybe the audience energy was off or, you know, we we had our first kind of official sellout Uh, which I can tell you, looking through my diary, uh, it was Saturday the 10th of August. So that was our second Saturday, like a week and a day into the festival and we had
0: our first kind of sellout. Yeah, can you tell me about the trajectory of the show now from when you started and how, how long did it actually run for? Uh, we, re- we did the whole
1: festival. It's kind of three and a half weeks. The first week is like a soft entry. So to go back to my diary here, so we did our first tech on the 31st of July. Um, we went back to Glasgow overnight. We drove back to Edinburgh in the morning. I dropped off the hire car. We finished our tech and then we did our first show. So that 1st of August was pretty insane but that first show was kind of a kind of a dress really it's got here that we had 7 paid people we probably had a few comps as well i didn't record comps i just recorded paid so some of these numbers might have been more in the end but and so then friday the 2nd saturday the 3rd sunday the 4th that's like the first weekend but it's like a soft weekend people kind of start arriving and then it really kicks into gear then monday the 5th was sort of the I think the official opening was like Friday the 1st. Yeah, it's then three weeks after that.
0: Were you guys out flyering that weekend as well? Was that a part of the promotional plan for your show there? Yeah, the first
1: weekend we actually did a bit of promo stuff, more so than flyering. So we actually did a guest spot on The Guilty Feminist because Deb was in town for that first weekend to do live shows and bless her heart she got us on to do a plug Uh, and we did a ticket giveaway and we had – and this is the way Edinburgh can be. This is the Friday the 2nd, fir- the sorry. So we'd done our first show the night before. We went to do this guest spot and we said, look, we're going straight from here, we're catching an Uber and going back to our venue to do our show. And and if you, and and if we've got t- tickets. So we had sort of women come up to us and go, we'll have some tickets, we'll have some tickets. And we went, okay, yeah, here you go, handed out free tickets out and said, how are you guys getting there? And they're like, well, I guess we'll get an Uber. And I said, okay, well, let's order a big Uber and we'll all ha, go together <laughs> so it was amy, on, amy, amy and i and i think four or five other girls into this uber i think we got to the venue at five thirty, and we were on at six um this oh. is the thing about edinburgh too is <gasps> you know when i do a show here particularly if it's in a theater and you've got a dressing room you know i like to arrive and spend time doing my makeup and
0: it's you know just
1: it's a process it's a process but edinburgh yeah. you're like you've kind of got to leave your house in the morning or the afternoon, depending on when you get up, but you kind of got to leave ready <laughs> ready for the day. You can't really sort of just duck back and, you know, you've got to kind of take with you. We, we were fortunate because where I stay, where I booked us was down the hill from our venue. So every day we would kind of walk up this hill for about 15, 20 minutes to our venue. So we would take kind of big stuff and we would drop it in our dressing room and then we could sort of walk with less stuff. Um, but, yeah, I would do my makeup before I left the house and then just hope it would last.
0: Yeah. No room for being precious. There's no
1: room for diva when you're at our level of Edinburgh and I don't think I, but, yeah, it was great fun to go back to our venue knowing that we had these six girls coming to see our show.
0: I have this image of you and Amy in my head as the pied pipers of improv yeah, just yeah. like it, leading it, your audience into well, the Well, it kind venue. of was
1: like that too. What we, you know, you talk about flowering. So that first weekend we kind of did more, I think, a bit of networking and some guest spots or that sort of thing. Really, I think it was early the next week when we, okay, yes, I've got it here. Look, Flyer and St Andrew's Square, Tuesday the 6th. We we decided pretty early on that it was not going to work for us going up to the Royal Mile to Flyer, firstly because it was up a whole other hill into the old town. It was so funny. You're in this beautiful city and I would have walked the path from our flat to our venue down to Princes Street, up the hill to the old town, Over to the big four venues and then like back again I just would have done that lap over and over and over with all that and the hot yoga I was quite fit by the end of Edinburgh performing every day as well like I'm pretty sure I was quite fit by the end of it like it was a marathon you know but we we just thought people are not there they might not cross the the side of town it's not very far but it's still down a hill so What's going yeah. to draw them down? Are we better focusing our efforts on our side of town and try to draw people in who are already over here and see if they want to either come back or, you know, stick around? So I think I've got Tuesday the 6th, we fly at St Andrew's Square, which is a square and ice out of town. We just kind of went round and round it, talking to people out in the park because it was a sunny day that day. Then on Wednesday the 7th, I've got Half Price Hut and Amy's Gun Flyering. Amy is a fantastic flyer, I should say. Um, so that's when I started putting tickets on the half price hut. So this is the next thing. So our show, we charge 10 pounds per ticket. In Edinburgh, they have a half price hut. So you can sort of log on to your system, log in, and you can say, I want to put this many tickets at half price. So it was five pounds. So 10 pounds a ticket roughly equated to about 17, 18 Australian dollars. So we do the show in Australia for about 30 dollars. So already we're doing it for like $17, so almost half what we would sell it for in Australia. And then to put it on £5, you're talking about yeah. like $9, $8, dollars per ticket. Not it's much. It's not much. And this is why the money doesn't work. The finances don't work. because. But what that half-price hut did, what it attracts is people go to the half-price hut, which why it was advantageous for us is on Prince's Street. So it's in the new town and it was really a block away essentially from where our venue was. So people just had to turn around, walk up a hill, take a right and then they were at our venue. So it was like super close, like a two-minute walk. And so we worked out that if we put some tickets on the half-price hut and then we would go and flyer outside the half-price hut in the hours before. Show And we found that was the most effective tactic for us because people would be walking past and just having a look and they would take our flyer. But a lot of people would be kind of looking at what's flashing up on the screen going, you could see this for half price and this is half price and this is now seven pounds and this is now eight pounds and this is now 10 pounds and we were there at five pounds. So we could say, hey, we're from Australia and we played up. We sort of tried to play up the fact that we've come all the way from Australia, but we sort of played up the the argumentative side so I would say I would go up to people being quite gruff going can I ask if you like the movie love actually and if they'd go oh yes I'd love it I'd go okay we'll find it I'm really disappointed in you uh, and and then and and uh, if they said I hate it I'd be like you're a good person I like you you should come to my show and support me Excellent. and then I'd point to Amy who'd be on like a pre-show <laughs> yeah basically it was a routine you know so Amy and the other would be like because Amy's sort of you know persona in the show is just all super sweet and I love this movie and I'm full of romance and love and joy and happiness about love and and so we would kind of have these mock fights while we were trying to convince people to come to the show so it was kind of a bit of a taster I guess and we'd wear our Christmas hats we had shirts printed up before we left which said I mine said I hate love actually and Amy said I love love actually so we kind of had a bit of a uniform all these things that I read about that can help flyering you know do something that makes you stand out a bit and so we would try to put in two good hours of flyering but it it kind of depended on what we were doing the rest of that day and if you know as we got into it if we were like I'm a bit tired you know we might only do an hour or something but we would generally get from those flyering efforts we would generally get audience and we because we could say to them we're on at six o'clock so really soon and it's just up there. So you can go have a drink and then come see us.
0: Yeah, so coming up with clever ways to not just flyer but to grab your audience's attention and make them want to see your show. And now let's talk about the progression of your show over those three weeks because I'm sure your audience has naturally picked up with all of that effort that you were putting it in. It varied.
1: But, yes, it's sort of, uh, what have we got, 7, 13, 21, 10, 8... That was a Monday, then 26, 25, 27, 34 on a Friday, and then 46, Ooh. which was our uh, sellout, our first sellout. The Sunday after that was down to 25, which was still half full.
0: That sold-out night must have just been amazing. How did that come to be your, your big sellout? Well, it was just, I think, a Saturday night. We sort of talked
1: about the when people come to Edinburgh and why, and you have these discussions with people where you try to work out what audiences are thinking. You have these like deep philosophical questions about who's going to see what and when, who are you targeting? So the fact that we had a, a sold out, you know, booking sold out, like we, we we got to that booking like I think by the Friday so we didn't have to flyer that Saturday. We kind of had the day off flying because, well, we've sold out tonight, let's take the day off because so much of Edinburgh is just day by day. Um but we were really excited. And when you think about it, people who are going out on a Saturday night, they're possibly more locals or they're people who've planned ahead and gone. We've booked in because we've got a babysitter or we've organized the night out or we've you know, they've put more thought into it than someone who's just come off the street on a random Wednesday. So we think that that's why their energy uh, was maybe a bit more somber because we had to work harder to impress them because they were like expecting really, really, really good and they were just waiting to make sure that we were really good. Whereas if you've just walked in by random and you're in a good mood, all of a sudden you will be like, this is fantastic. So maybe it was just, and you're a performer, you know that audiences can give you different stuff. Like you can have some audiences that are just pitch perfect and you just want to do a show to them every night. Some that are a nightmare because they're like enthusiastic but they won't shut up, like they're too they're too drunk or they're too rambunctious and you're like just let me get some words out or let me get something out and then you get ones who are like enjoying it but they're not demonstrative so we got nothing but nice compliments as people left that show but then we still spent like two hours afterwards at Hungry Jack's eating chips going are we not funny what's why didn't they laugh at this bit and what and then going should we change this bit and then say no 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 but last night's audience laughed at that and the night before laughed at that why didn't they laugh at it tonight <laughs> and you just sit there having these micro analytical discussions about what is it about that audience why didn't what bits did they like what you know what was going on with them uh, it's really you just become like a scientist kind of trying to <laughs> compare each and and it's just is the way of things like audiences give you different energies and it's it's never been more apparent than doing a show over and over. You know, this is the longest time that I think either Amy or I had done. Certainly, Love Hate actually, and we've we've both done shows with long runs. But you generally kind of do maybe Thursday to Sunday, and then you have a break. Or you know, this is every day except for two Mondays. Uh, so we did 24 shows in 26 days. So you just you're, you're feeling each shape of each audience really acutely, and you're. You know, you're kind of trying to sort them into the good crowds and the okay crowds and the...
0: And, and not letting yeah. that affect you and still putting on the same show every night. Were there, were there any audiences that really stood out for you, any nights that really keep in your mind as being So winners? the next
1: night after that,
0: they were excellent.
1: It was half the size but, like, double the volume. And the, and this is this is the thing. So you have this night where you're like, I'm just so confused by what's going on. And then you have a good crowd the next night, and they're like, No, it's okay. we
0: the show is still funny. It's it's okay. It's okay. Which I think just uh, makes a comment on the fact that you can't necessarily create a work for a certain audience. You can keep them in mind, but at the end of the day, you just have to create your own point of view. something that amuses you in a show because every audience is completely different and inevitably it's going to appeal to some and just not to others. Yeah, and
1: I think we uh i would say that we actively targeted women whenever we've done love hate actually we've really actively targeted women because women are the audience for rom-coms but we always have a good response from men and men tend to come because they're coming with a woman so they're you know relatives or friends but i would say that's really the only active targeting that 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 we do with our with our marketing is, is try and aim towards women. But we, we want any men who come to the show to still enjoy it. We still want to be funny and entertaining. But yeah, we we kind of as you say you sort of this this was something that was very personal to Amy and I. We literally do have had historic fights about about the movie. So when I was thinking it's like I've got to do something with this with this sort of ongoing um, love hate actually business that that I get into every year with people about it being terrible. And yeah, we did it and we're really proud of it ourselves and you just hope the audience can see the craft that you've put into it.
0: Absolutely. And, but not every audience will, were there there any nights or any moments throughout the season where you learned a hard lesson or had to deal with anything really difficult? Um,
1: Generally not in the show because the show is always a joy to perform. The crisis moment for me came kind of at the start of the third week when we ended up having this strange very temporary relationship with a guy who ran a review site there who it's a very long-winded but it, it sort of became this he had very little context of who we were and what we do but was sort of questioning why we were doing what we were doing and that was enough to just send me into a kind of a spiral of not self hate so much, but just kind of questioning everything and going, uh, this is terrible. I'm wasting my life. I'm, you know, all these sorts of things.
0: Especially at the week three point where you're, you're probably getting a bit tired. The novelty has just worn off a little bit. It's it's proper hard graft. Yeah, now. and this
1: is what I mean by going, you're just loving every moment because you're doing the thing that all your life you've thought, or at least for, you know, 10 years I've thought, this is something I really wanted to do and I'm here and I'm doing it. But then all of a sudden you're like, this one guy from a review site has questioned sort of fundamentally why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it was just enough to kind of break into a crack And and kind of an emotional dam burst. Now, I I knew going into Edinburgh that most performers have kind of a, I think they they call it something like the the blues or the, people refer to it as kind of a mini depression, a down state, a... And are Coming to terms with the reality
0: just, of everything. Yeah,
1: just, just a questioning life moment, I guess. Yeah. And I had really tried to prepare for that because I'd heard, I'd read so many articles of people saying, this is what Edinburgh is like, and this is what you can expect to go through. And I'd really tried to brace myself and prepare myself. And I thought probably end of the second week, I had a day where I was a bit down and just not feeling very good and low energy and can't remember anything in particular. Just remember that I had this moment and I went, Ah. I'm probably having my down moment. I've read about this. I'm going to, you know, just be a bit kind to myself and try to, to just get through it. And I, I the next day I woke up feeling better and went, I'm, I'm feeling better. That's good. I managed my down moment. I'm really proud of myself. And then it w- I think maybe false sense of security. <laughs> and, then, and then the Monday happened and we had this chat with this guy because we were trying to get reviews. That was the big thing we were trying to get it was just someone to come and review us. And uh thankfully he he did come and review us, but he had all these strange opinions that just it, it just kind of got it was like this rolling opinion waterfall that he kind of doused us with. Yeah. And 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 Amy was very, very resilient, I think, and she handled a lot more decently than I did, whereas I had to like go off and wander the streets uh quietly questioning all of my life choices up to that point and then also then feeling incredibly guilty because I'm here doing something I really love. So many people are not as fortunate as I. You are so privileged, Natalie. How can you even have a moment's doubt? You indescribable cow, <laughs> you know, it was yeah, it, it, yeah. like the twin the twin moments of going, what am I doing? I'm, I'm wasting everything. And then why are you feeling guilty? You should be embracing this, you know,
0: Yeah, it's not exactly a helpful feeling that we uh, foster within ourselves. Is it when you're already down because of an outside, something that has gotten to you, and then you layer this guilt on top of you? It's not really a method for it. It was just an unexpected broadside.
1: And it just kind of got me right in the feels mm. and then the guilt on top of that hit me from the other side at the at the start in of week, week three. three <laughs> and and that that Monday we only had one person booked in, so I ended up making the call where I just sort of rang Amy and said, "I'm cancelling <sighs> the show. Um, I think I, I think I'm just going to cancel because it, it was either I had to go get Amy back because I I had gone right. I'm going off. I'm going to stamp around quietly by myself and. I'm going to be too annoying so Amy I think went back to the the flat and
0: yep I'm going to go and manage my feelings in an adult professional way
1: by pissing off and I was like I've got a couple of hours to decide and then at about three o'clock I went we either have to reconvene now and start flying or I cancel the show because we, we have no audience beyond you know we have to go and drum up and I was like maybe we'll drum up 10 people it's a Monday I'm just going to cancel the show
0: you're not in the headspace for that flyering either. That would have been a, a form of torture yourself, oh. trying to find <laughs> the happiness in you and promote a show that you didn't even have the heart for that I, night. Yeah, I had
1: a few days of flyering where Amy, Amy, and this is I will have endless praise for Amy and just how she was able to just push on with flyering, whereas I would let my feelings be much more obvious when I was like, oh, God, I'm so tired of this. You know, she was always bright face you know sunny disposition even if she wasn't feeling it inside she just always turned it on for the punters um so i have endless praise for her for that whereas it's they there going oh, grumpy so yeah that day i was just like no and what i did to manage my feelings which is what i always do is i went to like um boots and i just w- walked through the shelves of like pretty makeup and like tested products on my arm and just kind of i'm quite haptic like that so i quite i'm not an artist i can't do anything with paint but i like um, playing with makeup and colour and things like that on my face. So I would just yeah. like get testers and swipe them on my arms and almost kind of feel better because I was...
0: Just revert revert back to that 16-year-old girl version of yourself, just playing with cosmetics as a form of recreation. <laughs> just to take yourself out of the previous thought. Pattern. Totally disengage. Deciding also how much you choose to listen to. I mean, it's it's inevitable when when it's one of the few reviews you get that it's going to, be- play on your mind but also just needing to decide that man was no longer serving you he was not bringing anything to the party that was going to get you to the finish line so having to separate yourself from him and you did get to the end you did finish the season and I I just got a lot more positive but I had to have that horrible moment
1: I I I still feel bad because I think I, I ended up having an argument with Amy about something like I was just it put me in such a bitter mood that I picked you know I had to um get it out and of course Amy you know copped the the, the brunt of that um, because, you know, we were living together. So I was like, well, oh, this and this and it just every other, Edinburgh's a bubble, you know, and you, everything kind of gets magnified. And it's such when you look back and you go, this is just such trivial. And I think that's one of the things that Edinburgh taught me. I hope that now I'd be a bit more better at compartmentalising that stuff But when you're talking about, you know, I was doing my first ever Edinburgh, I'd invested a lot in this, my own money in parts of it, but also my investors money. So you've got a lot of emotion tied up in what you're trying to make. And particularly since, you know, I'd left my job and I was looking to try to turn my, my arts work into a main job. And so all of a sudden, my kind of precariously balanced ego, I guess, (laughs) took a battering and, and it, it just was enough to kind of throw, throw me off balance. So I, I think that's a big learning experience that Edinburgh gave me and I'm very grateful for it now, but at the time
0: (laughs) it was really hard. Yeah, that's a hard lesson to learn. That's a really hard lesson to learn to to realise just how thin you have stretched yourself and how much you have riding on this experience and, therefore, how fragile you're ego and i mean that in a good way but like how fragile your ego and your feelings of self-worth become because you have everything hedged on this project and you're in a foreign country and it's yeah it's just a a pressure cooker for feelings of self-worth yes if you were to do the festival again and I know that you have dreams of doing so, would you do anything (laughs) differently? Or if you could redo this particular experience with Love, Hate, actually, would you have done anything differently? I really
1: don't know. Uh, I think I did the best possible job in the circumstances that we had. First time in Edinburgh, trying to get established. Sure, being in like a more high profile venue, not, not to disparage imagination workshops by any means, they were very good to us. But maybe had you been on the other side of town in a, more high profile kind of venue, maybe you would have got better audiences or maybe you would have been seen. Maybe. It's just a lot of maybes. Um, I also heard stories from other people that year that were having hard times and that sort of thing. The, the, the good thing that happened was that, I, and I think what helped me a lot was that my friend Deborah Francis-White, who, who came, I just sound like I'm name dropping the whole time. She is my famous friend. So that's, that's right, why I, love that's I do fine. name drop. But she She's amazing and she, we ended up catching up with her. They did a Guilty Feminist live at the end of the festival and so we went to that and then caught up afterwards at the after party and we we had a, a bit of time with her where I was able to kind of say some of these things about this guy and whatnot and she she said, look, she went through a list of a whole bunch of things that went wrong with her first fringe and she said you know she asked us about our audiences and that was the big surprise of of Edinburgh for us were our audiences i just did a quick tally then we ended up having 588 people total paid across the festival which averaged 24.5 people per show which is 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 basically half mm-hmm. full we had an average of, of being half full for the whole show. You hear horror stories about like the average audience at Edinburgh. I've heard the average audience is two. I've heard it's four. I've heard it's seven. But it's low uh, because a lot of people might do a show and no one comes or three people come and you have to go on and do the show. So I think the lowest audiences we had were like seven and uh, seven and eight. And you know, they were our lowest. And so to have, that was our big surprise. I was really going in going, we're only going to have three people turn up, two people turn up. Like we're going to have to do the show in front of one person uh, and that's just going to have to be the way it is because that's what you do in Edinburgh. And we never had to do that. So bless that experience. And Deborah told us that we had a really good first fringe. She said, all things considered, you know, your audiences were decent. Yes, you had this drama, but you didn't have this, this and this that, that I went through. She told us some other horror stories. And she said, just look at it as having a really decent first fringe. And that helped to really clarify and go, we we did it. You know, we we pulled it off. This is this huge endeavour to go from Australia to Edinburgh. First time as no real history. You know, Deborah was my only kind of connection really. I had to kind of build ahead of time and try and network and all that sort of stuff. If I were to go back, it depending on the show that I would take, I would really try to look at the finances a bit more if I was to take another two-hander show, I, I just, I don't know how I'd probably try to get a venue, maybe try on the other side of town or something like that. But if I were to take a show like a Speed or a Titanic, weirdly enough, I would try to price it a bit higher because uh, say a show like Speed has a limited audience. It's however many people you can fit on the bus, which is generally about 40. Yeah. And... Um, That means that the show, you have to do the show a lot to start to make any kind of money. So I can't do that show with only £5 per person. What I realised about Edinburgh, and this is not always true, but what I realised was that you can discount tickets in an environment where discounting is heavily expected, but you can never increase. So if I was to do a show like Speed, which is a really unique experience, and I think that's worth 20 quid. And that is a lot of money for Edinburgh. That's a, that's a high price ticket because that's what 30. Well, I think I do speed here now for about 35 to $40, depending where it is. So that's just charging in Edinburgh, what I would charge in Australia. It's, it's not, it's not a huge price. And if, if it got popular, which it could conceivably do because it's a different type of experience, it's super fun. It's a bit culty. So it's the kind of thing you could imagine people saying, Oh, you've got to try and get a ticket. But it's also only 40 people. I can't increase the capacity. So I have to be able to kind of future-proof myself and go, well, if I was to do it, I'm going to put a £20 charge on. And then if it's not selling, cool, I can half price it to £10. Not a worry. But if it got successful, I want to be able to sell whatever I've got left for £20 a ticket. I also sort of decided that if I was to do a show like that where you're doing multiple performances a day. That I wouldn't want to make my actors flyer as well. I know that, like for Amy and I, it was just part of our job. You'd flyer for a few hours every day. You'd do the show. That was your work, and then you know you'd you'd try and advocate for the show wherever else you could. But you know, I saw people doing multiple shows, and some some people don't fly; they just have flyers, but they still do multiple shows a day. But I would try to not have to make performers flyer, you know, because they've got to perform, they've got to do the show well and it's a high energy physical show that I want them to be putting their energy into that, not desperately trying to strum up an audience. So that's my job as a producer now with my producer hat on to go, okay, well I'll have to budget to hire some flyers or try and get the word out another way because it's a marathon and people get tired and they get emotional so it's about managing people's energy levels. And I don't want people to go all the way over to Edinburgh. And the only memory that they have is that, oh my God, I was doing three shows a day. Then I had to fly for two hours. I never got any sleep. I never got to see anything else. So, you know, you want people to enjoy the experience.
0: I think that's a huge lesson to take away from this chat, going into something like this you say the word marathon and i think that's a really great way to think about it because you've got to know how to manage your, your not only your finances but your energy and your relationships between colleagues throughout the whole event and the yep. it, it it seems that just the whole festival is a real learning curve to get around. I don't think you can go to your first Edinburgh Fringe and expect success off the bat. It needs to be something you immerse yourself in, you educate yourself about for years and years and try and try again and just enjoy the experience of it's, it. it. It's
1: literally said so often that, you know, people do Edinburgh for five years and then become an overnight success kind of thing. It's, it's like that's yeah. the story of Edinburgh.
0: But doesn't that just speak to the nature of the biz as well like it, it's the, I love that parallel there I think it's it's a refrigerant way of shaping you up as a performer reminding you that take a lot of behind the scenes work and a lot of years of plugging away and learning the ropes before you can even hope for success and I mean there's always exceptions to that but yeah it's it's a long haul yeah, and also if I can if I can give a piece of advice it just, everything just costs
1: more than you'd you'd think and, and, and be prepared to lose it. It's like going to a casino. Just be, take your $500 yeah. and be prepared to lose it on the tables. You, you know, Otherwise, you'll walk out feeling bitter and, and twisted.
0: And I, yeah, I think ultimately just approaching these kind of festivals and fringe worlds, especially if you're a first-timer, as like a creative experiment, as a creative yeah. holiday as opposed to a money-making mission and definitely just, just taking each lesson as it comes. And regardless of all the hurdles that you have to overcome to put on a show in in a In a place like The Fringe, it's still such a fabulous platform for new work and for artists who are creating that work themselves, just like you are. And I know you've got some new work coming out soon as part of the Anywhere Theatre Festival. Would you like to plug that and tell us what's coming out in Brisbane? I do.
1: Uh, This is very exciting. The Anywhere program has just been revealed and uh, Act React has two shows going on in the festival this year. Anywhere is kind of similar to a fringe in Brisbane. The theory of the festival is that it's shows done anywhere but a theater kind of thing. So it's about using innovative in different spaces. So we're doing a show called The Importance of Being Wasted, which is a uh, take on the importance of being earnest by Oscar Wilde. Um, we're calling it a, a drunk classic, so the concept is that a couple of the audi- a couple of the performers, I should say, will be quite tipsy uh, through the show and uh, be, you know, glass in hand. And the aim is to kind of see what kind of chaos happens when people are trying to do very witty wordplay, courtesy of Mr. Wilde, while three sheets to the wind. So that should be super, super fun. And then the other show is The Great Grandiosa, which is a sort of an improvised comedy show based around the character, uh, a character that I do called The Great Grandiosa, who is a very, very dodgy psychic. Uh, who believes her own hype. (laughs) So uh, she is the world's dodgiest psychic but uh, is so full of self-confidence that everything is a success, no matter how uh, clearly fraudulent it is. So she's a character I love to play because she just has so much confidence that I personally probably don't in real life. So getting to play this character who's just supremely like, yes, I meant to do that, everything is planned, I made everything happen, is uh, very, very fun. So, yeah, please go to actreact.com.au. The the website is new at the start of this year, brand new website overhaul. That was my lockdown project. And you can find out details and they're both very affordable, fun shows uh, to see at anywhere.
0: Oh, I so wish I could be there. If you're in Brisbane, absolutely make sure you get out to see the wonderful work that's being created by these homegrown companies we have. Oh, uh, Nat, I've, I've so missed having long, long chats with you about creative stuff. We could do it for hours, couldn't we? Oh, thank you so I much. I do-, do go on, don't I? I oh, do I on. love it, darling, I love it. Uh, before we finish, though, do you have anyone you'd nominate for a, a, an interview on the podcast? You know
1: what? I've mentioned her a lot, but I... I'm gonna try and hook you up with Deborah Francis White because no, that she-
0: don't make me do it. <laughs> I'm so nervous. She is... I can't talk to Deborah Francis. You absolutely
1: can. She is the loveliest person and she would love you, Lauren, because you're doing, you know, what she did and she grew up on the Gold Coast, would you believe? And she just has an amazing story, an amazing story. And the thing is, though, is that she does everything for others and she she does so much in the way of activism and promoting women, promoting diversity, uh, supporting refugees. She's just like a constant inspiration for me and and you know she's a a, you wouldn't know it from her accent as she always says she read a lot of Enid Blyton and picked up the accent from the books but she's she's an Australian girl and she's just a a wonderful role model for me and I am always stunned now I'm like oh we're friends she's super super famous but she's still you know Pets chats to me on facebook mind. and <laughs> you know we, we have chats okay. and and we catch up whenever whenever we can so oh, um gosh. yeah i will try I, I i will i will try to make some magic happen so you can chat to deborah because she just has <sighs> all right, so, right all right you've done so me much good now. advice put
0: my money where my mouth is <laughs> and contact this woman i look up to so greatly oh well thank you nat well stay tuned listeners we'll see if we make that happen at some point in the future and in the meantime, Nat, I'm going to love you and leave you, mate. Next time you're in Edinburgh, I will be there with a stack of flies in hand on the corner. I will be that person for you. I can't wait to experience Lauren, for myself whenever I get there. Next time I'm, I'm in
1: Edinburgh, you're going to be in the show, my friend.
0: <laughs> All that too. Let's do that. I'm not letting you get away. <laughs> uh, well, I'm on hand at least. I'll cost a little bit less than the people you That's right. ship over from Oslo. That's Oz, right. So. <laughs> All right, love. Well, thank you so much. You've been an absolute wealth of knowledge, all things to do with Edinburgh Fringe and in uh, creating work. So thank you so much. I love you, darling. Love you so much. Thank you so much for the chance to chat. Wow. Thank you, Nat. I can't wait till the world has returned to some semblance of normality so that I can go and experience this festival firsthand. It's absolutely a bucket list item for me, but as Nats explained, it's not for the faint-hearted. I think it was really important for us to feature this story today about how a company starts from its grassroots, especially after my rant on episode six about companies not paying artists for their work. Nats really helped me to understand just how difficult this can be when you are starting from basically nothing but your own savings. but. Her comment about how she was sometimes paying her artists even a small fee when she herself was perhaps not even taking a cut really just speaks volumes about her and her ethics as a producer. This woman and the work she produces, folks, is awesome. It's awesome. It's so much fun. And I insist that if you are living in Queensland, that you get yourself a ticket to the Anywhere Theatre Festival and you go and see her shows. In fact, when you go, I want you to take a picture of yourself at the event with the actors or with Nat and to send them to me at the.pursuitpod on Instagram and I will post your photo on our page and give you a shout out on an episode to thank you for it. And while you're online booking your tickets, take a second to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on your favorite podcasting platform so that you never miss an episode. Now, some very exciting news, folks. I am now able to announce that this show is now part of the That's Not Canon Production Network, a fabulous collective run by Brisbane creative Zane Weber that features over a 100 other homegrown podcasts just like this one that you should go and check out. We've also now begun our journey with hosting through Acast, which is a company that provides monetization and growth support to podcasters. Our show might have a few little ads attached to it moving forward, which will allow us to reach new audiences and expand our horizons. So thank you, Zane, for bringing me on board. In future shows, we might even feature a bit of cross-promotion with other podcasters from the network, so stay tuned. It's an exciting week for the Pursuit Pod, guys, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart for lending me your ears. But that's enough from me. Much love, listeners. Go and book your tickets. Until next time.